0: Alrighty, so welcome to the official game audio panel. That last one just got lassoed into, but it was kind of fun talking about Rocksmith. So we're going to talk about kind of a diverse range of topics here in game audio today, and I've got some really awesome panelists here with me. It's quite a group, quite a gathering, I should say. And an awesome uh, moderator. Thank you, Steve. Sorry. <laughs> ah, and of course... Fortunately for us, we have a female component to our panel. Very glad to have Kristen here. I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves in just one second, but I just want to say, you know, the last 10 years have seen obviously a huge dynamic change in the music industry, and there's been a lot of technological innovation that has been extremely disruptive to the traditional business models. And as we've seen the music industry go into a complete kind of tumble and state of flux around adapting to new technologies and delivery methods, we've witnessed the, the game industry really rise up in, in an unprecedented level. And earlier I was talking to, to Brian down at the end over here, and he pointed me to uh, a pretty cool website that had a story. Uh, it's on GeekWire talking about how video games have caused this huge spike in music composer employment and has really created a tremendous level of opportunity for artists and musicians to find ways to express themselves and to integrate with the technology on a a whole new level. I I think that's awesome. I think it's something that we, we have to acknowledge in a way that is really great for artists in general, and finding ways for artists to find gainful employment for themselves. One thing we also have to acknowledge is you know, video games come out now, and especially the big AAA titles that can come out and in a weekend gross a billion dollars. That's pretty staggering. Grand Theft Auto just came out and grossed a billion dollars in one weekend. So you you have to kind of just sit and think about that for a minute, just as uh, in ramification to the music industry in general, which has been suffering tremendously uh, in terms of sales, loss of sales, uh, when the music industry, I don't know the exact statistics, but they're somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 billion industry, and we have one game title come out uh, and gross a billion dollars. So I just want to kind of let you think about that for a moment as our esteemed panelists introduce themselves. So Brian, why don't we start with you down there?
1: Sure. Hi, I'm Brian. Sch- oh, I'm supposed to smile, laugh, and have fun. Yes! That's what it says, That's what it says right here. I'm Brian Schmidt. Uh, I've been doing game music and sound for about 27 years now. Anything from music composition to assembly language programming of audio operating systems for game consoles. I was at Microsoft for 10 years. I designed most of the audio system for the Xbox, Xbox 360, and a bunch of Xbox One stuff. I run a conference on game music and sound called Game Sound Con, which we're having down in L.A. next month. And I'm also an independent developer of small video games, a company called Ear Games. It's called Ear Games because it's video games that don't really have much video. You use sound to play them. So that's That's kind of me in a nutshell. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that.
2: Hi, my name is Steve Horowitz. I am intimidated by Brian because he's actually been doing games longer than I have, which is actually something, saying something. I got my start in the early 90s here in San Francisco with a fellow named Mark Miller who gave me my start in doing interactive composing for games. And we worked for a lot of companies at that time, Sony, Sega, Crystal Dynamics, for the console companies. And I left San Francisco and found myself in New York and wound up running the audio department for Nickelodeon Digital for about 10 years. While I was there, I also scored a film called Super Size Me, so I'm a composer and a bass player. So I write music and write my own stuff and all that good stuff as well. And just recently moved back to the Bay Area in 2010, where I've been continuing to compose and to write, as well as working on a book for uh, Sound for Games and Interactive Media, doing workshops, and uh, in general, just keeping on with my love of games and interactive sound.
3: Hi, I'm Kristen. I've been working in the industry for since about 2000. I started at LeapFrog and worked at EA, and uh, lately it's been Mobile Games. I work at Super Saga Studios in Marin. Cool. Thank you. Great.
4: I'm Clint Bajakian. I started in 1991 with Michael Land and Peter McConnell at LucasArts Entertainment. And what was going on there, one of the main things was the iMuse system, which is an interactive music and sound effects system that Michael and Peter authored. We worked on titles like Monkey Island and Maniac Mansion, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. I composed the score for Outlaws. I was independent for a while with my own company called Bay Area Sound. And then I was with Sony Computer Entertainment America As senior music manager, working on titles like Uncharted and God of War, uh, Journey and uh, Infamous and others. And now I'm very happy to have joined Greg here at Pyramind in the city. And it's a, a really exciting new start as a creative director and senior composer.
5: My name's Richard. I'm a composer and sound designer. I think I'm uh, the, the the newcomer, the newbie to the party. I've been uh, in working in interactive audio for the last eight years or so. I work as a composer and sound designer for Leapfrog. I know Christian very well. And in my in my other life, I develop uh, brain-computer music interfaces using the emotive EEG system and galvanic skin response and various different biofeedback tools. So that's kind of uh, my my late nights are taken up with all of that. <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: we'll talk about that, too. Some fascinating stuff. And I'm Greg Gordon. I'm the CEO and president of Pyramind. We're both a music production company as well as a training facility. We specialize in music for interactive arts, video games in particular. But we work with all kinds of high-tech companies as well, doing sound design and UI design for them. And uh, we're very fortunate to have a great team that works at Pure mind uh, from both the composition side, sound design, engineering, mixing, mastering, and that takes full advantage of our facilities here in the city. We've got about six studios down on Folsom Street, and I see some of our students here. I see some of my staff here, <laughs> so it's really great to see your support. Thank you. So let's get started. I'd love to start here just to kind of help us get into some, some main topics, some terms, some definitions. I think because there's so much interest from the composer side, I'd like to start there. And uh, maybe, Clint, you could help us a little bit here by kind of illuminating a little bit the difference between what interactive music and an adaptive score is. You know, you've been involved with some pretty amazing projects, uh, some gang award-winning projects for Best Interactive Score, Best Music of the Year for God of War, for Journey. So tell us a little bit about what what does it mean to create an adaptive score?
4: Oh, thanks, yeah. If you look at film and and... And you, you, you appreciate how well the music enhances the dramatic aspect and the narrative of the, of the story. That's what we're trying to do. I'm not talking about racing games or sports games. I'm talking about more like story games and narrative games and action adventures and things like that.
0: That's certainly what God of War and Journey God
4: God, yeah. God of War, Uncharted are perfect examples. Um, Assassin's Creed, even though that, that was Ubisoft, that's, that's the basic thing. We're trying to create emotion and we're trying to elevate the experience uh, just like you would in film. But we need to do it in a way that's musically, that's musical, that's musically smooth. And so the, the challenges of, of adaptive music are you're setting up a, a bunch of assets and resources and rules that then you have to leave it. You, you can't be there anymore to, to control it or to babysit it. It goes out into the world, and it, the, the, it gets stimulated by however the player plays the game. And so it's the quality of how well you rig that up that that directly translates to the quality of the musical experience. And, and the quality of the musical experience, of course, is it directly correlates to the quality of the dramatic narrative of the music. Now, I'll give you an example of... of of a game I observed recently, I won't say what, it kind of employed this age-old thing that I think we've all grown out of, the better games today have grown out of, which is when we're, when we're in a fight, I want action music. And when we're not in a fight, I want ambient music. So if we get into a fight, play the action music. And if we're out of the fight, play the ambient music. And this game simply had an action loop an ambient loop, and it simply cross back and forth between them as you went in and out about. And there actually was no relationship in, in the keys of the music, even. And it just didn't work. It just didn't sound good. And so check in the box, the right level of intensity was playing at the right time. But it was a disaster uh, in every other way and, and broke the plane of, of uh, entertainment value. The other thing that, it, that I, I would say that it failed to do is recognize that we might be like in the film Gladiator with Russell Crowe where there's a battle scene. Uh, things are in slow motion and all the sound effects go really abstract and the music becomes really sensitive and big and lush. You guys may know the scene. That's a creative decision that we need to also support. So we've got a long way to go in the video game industry when we're setting up these rules and assets to respond adaptively to stimuli within the game for there to be reflected a full complement of an artist's vision. And lastly, I'll just tell you that adapted music occurs on two planes. It occurs on a vertical plane, and it occurs on a horizontal plane. The horizontal, you think of it as like a linear edit, so that we're in, a, say, a stereo piece of music, and when the situation changes, we crossfade to maybe a transition segment, and then, which takes us to the piece of music we need to be in. That's linear or horizontal. Vertical is when the composite of the actual piece of music changes in terms of having different tracks that are all playing, but the volume of the different tracks go up and down depending on the intensity of the action. And that's a really good technique when you go rapidly into action and out of action, and into action and out of action, because uh, you don't have to switch back and forth between pieces of music. It's just the same piece of music becoming more, if you will, muscular and less muscular kind of expanding and contracting in intensity without breaking the musical flow. And the very last thing I'll say is that you can imagine the challenges of doing those things well and doing those things musically. What we would like is the sound of the symphony orchestra or what have you playing in a way that was completely natural to the action and musical and perfectly responsive. And the question for all of us is how do we get there over the coming years and decades? But we will get there. It's just a question of exactly
0: So there's a lot of technology behind this. Right? There is. And there, there, is. there are different tool sets out there available to implement this type of an adaptive score into a game. Um, Steve, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what these tools are mm-hmm. and and, and what, what kind of technology is involved sure. that the composer needs to know about in the creation of, of these assets.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I thought that Clint did an amazing job of sort of describing sort of the situational dynamic in games. I'm just curious, how many people in the room are composers? Oh, okay. And other production folks or...? Okay, great. One thing i like to point out, or i like to highlight just, just briefly, if I could just comment off of Clint, is that there's any audio or any sound that happens in a game is almost by definition dynamic, right? Because it's, it has to take into account player feedback, right? So when you go to the left instead of the right, a different piece of music might play. That's dynamic audio. Now, the situations that Clint are, is starting to discuss have to do with adaptive audio, and that really has to do with, like you said, letting go of control, Right? So, in other words, you have to be, as a composer, able to compose a score that completely can fit together and go together in different ways, Right. yet you don't know when these pieces of music are going to play. Right? In a film, you watch it, it's linear from left to right. Every time the door opens, right, the big swell comes, and you always you put, you put your great music there, and it's awesome, right? That doesn't happen that way in games. You never know when that door is going to open exactly. So you have to compose to take these types of situations into account. So the programs that are out there for doing that, two of the very popular ones now are, maybe you've heard about FMOD, and Ys or WIs, and these are, in essence... If you look at something like Fmod Studio, how many of you have seen Fmod Studio or, or Wise or actually seen some pictures of these programs? The best way to think about it and the way I like to sort of talk about it is think about Pro Tools, but with like an extra set of limbs, right? So once you do all the things, it's like an octopus, right? It's like once you do all the things you know you're going to have to do in Pro Tools, you're going to edit that music, and you're going to make a perfectly seamless loop, for example, and you're going to put these intensities together. Then you're going to put it in FMOD, and you're going to do all these adaptive behaviors. You're going to put adaptive behaviors to these scores right? that only used to be able to be done by a programmer right? because we're... Some of us are programmers. Brian's, Brian does programming. I, I do not. Um, so I would be dependent on a programmer to do that. But when I have a program like Fmod or Wise, it looks like Pro Tools and I can define um, behaviors where things go in random succession, right? So pe- pieces can play in different ways. Then I'm able to do that in a, in a GUI, a graphic user interface, right? And in essence, what I'm doing is I'm, creating a, I'm using a code base, right? And at the end of the day, the program, the software, is going to produce a text document that it would have taken a programmer to program before, and a bunch of media, like Clint was saying, that I'm going to deliver to that person. So I've taken the programmer to a greater extent out of the loop, and I've given more control to myself as a composer and as a designer. So FMOD, WIS, you were talking, you were making me misty when you were talking about iNews, the iNews system. These systems used to all be internal. Every company made their own, and they didn't want to share And right around, I think, 2002, is it, when FMOD came out? Or 2000? Then we started to see third-party companies start to design these middleware, these these pieces of what we call middleware. And and middleware doesn't have to just be for audio. There's all different kinds of middleware. It literally sits between the game engine and the designer to allow you to. So that's a
0: a good point. So then what's the difference, then, between that middleware toolset and then the game audio engine itself? Right. I can keep going, or if you want to, you want to go for sure. it. Sure. I
1: think you jump a little bit. As you know, Steve was saying, it's the goal of these things is to really take all of the power that these people who design these game systems, you know, filters and envelopes and oscillators and this and that, all these technical things, and put it into something that a sound designer has the ability to use and make meaning, meaningful things out of. So when somebody has a cool idea about something creative they'd like to do. They don't have to go knock on the programmer door, and it used to be common to find out the favorite kind of beer the programmer liked, because that was the most likely way you had to get something you wanted to get done into the game.
4: And Invariably, it escalated to the harder (laughs) stuff.
1: It's it's an age-old, it's still in use today, that, uh, that system.
0: So the yeah. engine itself then has yep. all of these abilities to yeah, be programmed correct. to, yep. you know, to occlude sound. Say if you're right. walking behind a wall, it's going to yep. change your perception of the sound. Yeah, when by we designed the, the exactly. signal, exactly. Right?
1: When we designed the first Xbox, we stuck in this stupidly powerful audio chip. It was essentially <laughs> Pro Tools and Sample Cell on a chip. Yeah, it was way ahead of its time, and all the launch games came out, and virtually nobody used any of the cool features on the chip.
3: Was it like DSP processing? It was.
1: There was customized DSP. There was, for the geeks out there, there was a 133 megahertz 56000 DSP. There were three of them on the thing, wow. um, with custom reverbs and all these cool occlusion and obstruction effects. The audio what, engine. What
3: year was that?
1: 2001. Was that? Okay, and. Um, Nobody used it because in order to make the sound sound occluded, like it was behind <laughs> something, you had to knock on the programmer's door, and he had to make a special API call to do it. And so we actually got uh, permission to create this new Google graphical interface tool, which would put all of the power of these yeah. audio engine components, the, the nitty-gritty signal processing cool audio sh- stuff, <laughs> <Chiseled>. <laughs> stuff And put it into a graphical <laughs> interface that then composers could use. And once we did that, right. all of a sudden games started using yeah. this stuff. So that's the sort of the separation of the right. audio engine, the, right. the raw meat and horsepower, and the graphical user yeah. middleware interfaces. And, and, right.
2: and to, uh, like a more modern example, are you guys familiar with Unity? Yeah. The game engine Unity 3D, right? So when you go to the Unity site, when I first found out about Unity, I got excited. It's like the FMOD logo is stamped on the Unity site. You're like, <laughs> awesome. Right, so now I can use FMOD. I've been hired to do a game in Unity. I can use FMOD Designer at the time or FMOD Studio, and now I'm just going to take that designer file. I'm going to send it to the programmer, and I'm going to go get sushi. No, <laughs> no. So then you find out that they implemented the main, the basic audio engine for FMOD, but they didn't uh, the low-level API, but not the higher-level API that would communicate with Designer and all the cool stuff that Brian's talking about. So on a basic level, you have a game engine. And you do not do... All, there's not much that game engines will do with sound, right? Definitely. Now, some game engines will build their own custom... Uh, Unity's bizarre. Unity, before they had anything, before it could, ba- it could barely just... It could play a file and loop a file. It had amazing 3D. They put in all the 3D audio specs. It's like it's, like, it's still using mod trackers and it had every scalable <laughs> of the 3D audio spec. So you were able to do amazing th- you know, 3D uh, events and occlusion and all that stuff. So it, it's... The, the, the way to think about it best is it just depends, right? What, what engine you're going to get depends on what you might be able to do with it, what tools you might be able to use. And like Clint was saying, there's, you, know, you may get very lucky, and you may work on a AAA title and have all these things at your disposal, or you may not, and then you have to come up with um, clever ways around it.
0: And so then, Kristen, what do you do to, uh, as both an audio director and a composer? A and like a sound
3: designer. And sound, a sound design designer. You, you
0: wear a lot of hats <laughs> with Super Saga. So at what stage do you get to get involved on the audio From design? From the very
3: and... beginning. So From earlier than I've worked I've worked at many companies and it was Super Saga where, where we're building the what what actually are the components of the audio engine together. We're like, how how do we want this? What do we want it to be capable of? And I have I've always had a problem actually getting engineers to use middleware because they want like if they're enthusiastic especially about audio at all they want to hack it themselves they want to put it together themselves and it's great when you you don't want to put a damper on that enthusiasm because you have an engineer that's coming to you going what if we did like this interactive thing where like you know we had like four different tracks and they were all like you know Changing all the time, we is up and down. But is
0: that really cost effective? I mean, doesn't that mean you're reinventing the wheel every time you're trying to develop for a game? Well,
3: for small studios, mm-hmm. the budget is not huge, mm-hmm. you know. And Wise itself is a bit, it's a per product, so it's you a know, license. So it's like uh-huh. if you're doing mobile, you might as well just do you know. It's, sure. it's they're fairly simple. Mm-hmm. They're not usually 3D, mm-hmm. you know. You're making interactive music and you're making a handful of cool sounds, you know, maybe 40 or 50 sounds per, per app. So,
0: well, you're dealing with mobile games too. So it's a different, uh, it's a, it's, whole it's a much another... smaller ecosystem yeah. per game. Whereas when you're dealing with large titles, yeah, totally different thing where you're yeah. dealing with a lot more, then the and a much I more, think is a much higher level of complexity. At that yeah. Point.
3: Yep. And that's where I'd be like, please, can I use wise, you know, but it would, you know, for little things, I don't know. It feels like you're more involved almost like my my fear with wise is that you kind of go away and do everything, you know, but this way you kind of, audio gets forgotten sometimes, Uh you know, like people will run with their art and engineering meeting and forget that there's like, Oh, we should involve audio. But, and so having a developer that you're always talking to and whatever, I don't know, it can be kind of more, Involved, rewarding sort of. So, Brian,
0: you're a developer now, right? You're making games. You're making games. So, what's the new frontier for you? Because your games are are definitely delving into uh, the concept of 3D sound. Um, Maybe tell us a little about the difference between surround sound and 3D sound, um, and what what is head-related transfer function?
1: Oh, HRTF, (laughs) good stuff. HRTF, (laughs) because this is Um, a big
0: plays a big role in what you're doing right now.
1: Yeah. Think think about surrounds, or think think about a video game, what what that means, especially in today's 3D video games. You're sitting there, you're playing on this, this TV here, right? And you're seeing these 3D rendered images, but that's really just a teeny little window into this world that the game designer has created. And if I look over this way, I'll see what's over there. If I look over this way, I'll see what's over there, but I'm still always just looking at this. It's like I've got blinders on, right? With sound, fortunately, we can actually render or play those bits of the game that, you aren't, that aren't looking through your little window here. So you, you're essentially taking your blinders off sonically when you're doing a game in surround sound. So with surround sound, we typically think of that as living room setup. You, ha- you have 5.1 or 7.1 speakers. It's a flat, horizontal plane. Yeah, that's starting to change with Atmos and things like that. But um,
0: yeah, but Atmos isn't going to be in somebody's house, right? Uh, <laughs> I think right Dolby
1: would certainly like to uh, see that happen, but yeah. It's, well, it's maybe, maybe it's, in Bill Gates' house, right? Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've got a flat plane, you've got physical speakers, living room experience, that sort of thing. That, that's what we think of as surround sound. Um, HRTF, which goes back quite a long ways. HRTF was actually quite big in the mid-90s. The, the original Xbox had HRTF in it. We decided not to stick it in Xbox 360. Uh, and what that is, is it's a way of trying to render 3D sound using, spe- generally, headphones. And it kind of languished for a little while. And I think because people were thinking the living room experience, I, I was involved in the Dolby stuff with the original Xbox, and we were very excited to do surround sound and gaming and all that. And people just generally didn't listen to games with headsets. Now that changed, well, it's charging, right? Hold it up. That changed when people started playing on iPhones and mobile devices and androids and all these sorts of things all of a sudden we now have these gaming devices That have a bunch of horsepower in them I can do lots of cool math on it, which I need to do cool audio stuff and the players most likely to be listening with headphones and That's great for 3d audio. So what I started doing is developing these games which use a 3d audio technology called HRTF stands for head related transfer function it takes into account the fact if the sound's over here, it gets to this here before it gets to this here, and it's louder here, and it's louder there, and it bounces off my ears in different ways and shoulders, and it mimics that, and you give an impression of 3D sound. So...
3: Binaural processing. Binaural processing, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. So what these games do is it attempts to take sounds and have, instead of seeing the enemies, because you know, once you realize you're looking at this little world, well, what if we just got rid of the visuals altogether and so. now just had oral enemies which I can render in uh, technically 3D sound. There are some limitations. Uh,
0: Hence your ear monsters. Hence
1: ear monsters, yeah. Ear Uh monsters is essentially whack-a-mole or fruit ninja, except you can't see them, you hear them. So if you hear them here, you whack over here. If you hear them up here, you whack over there, and you play them like that. So it's this notion of expanding gameplay beyond this little myopic, literally myopic thing you've got and uh, see how things go from there.
0: So, And you're using QSound for this, to drive the sound. The sound yeah, I have,
1: I've had a kind of long-standing relationship with QSound going back to the, the early 90s, and so I, we did this thing where I could stick, they have this mobile technology, they shrunk down to mobile. Uh, and have a real. It's a real-time HRTF engine. I can play like 16 or 18 3D sounds concurrently, and Ear Monsters actually kind of cheat. It uses a combination of that engine some good old-fashioned dummy head recordings, which always sound really cool, and some, uh, I use Panorama and things like that for some other kind of stuff. So it's sort of a mixed and match. The idea is to deliver a binaural experience that is sort of this cool, out-of-head thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And so th- this is, obviously, this is a handheld related um, uh, iOS app that we yeah. have created. So now we've got you know, the imminent drop of the Xbox One, the PS4, and a whole new level of gameplay technology coming at us. So how do you see surround sound playing out on these new boxes, and do you feel like there's going to be do you anticipate that with the release of these new boxes there's going to be any specific platform having some kind of audio advantage over the other?
1: Um, i can't talk to a lot of that because uh, <laughs> I was pretty involved with Xbox One audio design. but well, we, we um, did of know course that kicks going to be
0: seven one out of the box with, um, with both of these
1: Yeah, one of the nice things about it, I mean the Xbox one came out in 2001, and since that time. You know, surround sound 5.17.1 has just become. That's the normal way we do stuff in games now. Um, it's actually easier to deal with surround sound in games than it is in motion pictures. Uh, it's more meaningful because you're act, you're always accurate conveying accurate information about where the off-screen things are. Uh, so as far as 5.17.1, yeah, that's 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 the min bar these days. And now and some of the cool of- stuff that Stephen. Um, you know, and Clint and uh, Kristen were talking about that's where the new frontiers are. One of the reasons sort of these tools that, again, you were talking about before were created is we were driving beyond our headlights. It didn't do us any good to have more signal processing in the box when the creative folks here couldn't take advantage of what we had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the frontiers are in the tools and the designs. It's like, what if you had to do a motion picture and all you had was Microsoft Sound Recorder? (laughs) <laughs> That's what video games were like. Well, now you got Pro Tools. Well, yeah. now they have some of these tools that uh, Pro right. we're talking about here. And, and I mean, of course
0: uh, now the user base has surround sound theaters in their homes. H- how many of you guys have a surround sound system in your home? Right if I think if we'd asked yeah. that question a few years ago There might have been maybe just one or two hands that have gone up. Yeah. So it's, it's obviously having an impact on the user experience. Absolutely. Um, and obviously now too, the the, the the budgets for these games have gone up significantly and um, they're they're implementing live orchestras and mm-hmm. significant amounts of players and composers per game. <laughs> I know, Clint, you've worked on some titles where we've had six to eight composers working on them.
4: Absolutely. Multiple composers, um, budgets in the 400, 500K plus range, which enabled, and this is external budgets for composition, orchestration, uh, the orchestras, musicians, the scoring stages, studios, soloists, and uh, and the like. Um, what drives higher budgets is not just deep pockets. That's obviously a, a requirement. But what drives it is that the delivery platform can carry that quality to the user, to the player. And if, if the player has the opportunity to experience higher, you know, greater or lesser levels of quality then so does the critic, and so do the reviewers, and, and, and you know, it has been proven that uh, positive reviews, high Metacritic scores, and awards and nominations do, in fact, translate into greater revenues for companies, and, and uh, you, you know, a decade or a decade and a half ago, that wasn't necessarily clear, but it has been proven, so... So a company uh, needs to achieve and compete in the realm of quality. So, that, that, so, so this is a really positive trend that, that mobile devices and, and tablets, uh, uh, in the same way that we used to be really intent you know, should we do surround sound for the game? I mean, how many people out there really have surround systems and are, they, and are playing our games on surround systems? Well, now the question for these other increasingly popular devices and platforms is, how many people are really playing these things with headphones? Because if they are... What's going to happen inevitably is the budgets are going to are going to skyrocket uh, across all the developers in a kind of what I would imagine to be kind of a frenzied competition. So for it quality, a, it's,
0: a, it's a frenzied competition for quality for recognition of excellence. I know that you know there's the Gang Awards. Uh, we haven't mentioned Gang, but it's the Game Audio Network Guild, of which Brian's the president and Clint is on uh, the board of directors for, uh, and they've certainly established uh, a, a position that enables uh, all of us to recognize and understand what the, the bar level of excellence is in our industry. How many of you uh, are familiar with gang? Brian, what's wrong?
1: Oh, i got to get the marketing <laughs> effort out. <now. laughs> so,
0: so
4: the shameless, uh, plug. I suppose it's audiogang.org. One word, audiogang. Uh, can I add something real quick? Sure. I sure. just want to add, I want to embellish upon what, what these three have said about, about tools Think about creativity and think about a potter with clay. They got their hands all over it, and the result is the artist's direct work. It's not so simple here because the artist is the sound designer or the composer, and if they have, if they're essentially shipping assets over the fence and sent, you out, know, emailing instructions, which effectively, it's an oversimplification, but effectively that's what's done a lot of a lot of the times. Um, Obviously, that's not a very direct thing. On on the other hand, if they have middleware that has an authoring component that gives them the power to author in their studio and test it out one of two ways. One, they can trigger variables and other incoming trigger data that will come from the game eventually um, using buttons and sliders in the authoring tool, or even perhaps better yet, have a virtual or a real cable from the game, from the development kit, into their authoring environment, and play the game. And the score or the sound and everything else is being is is behaving in their authoring environment. They can make tweaks, and that's the ultimate thing. But here's and then I'll I'll yield the floor. Right. Here is the here is for me uh, some and I think for well for many of us um, a critical point. Who is the best person qualified to make creative decisions about how all this stuff sounds and how it all behaves and how the music, how the sound, how everything is unfolding dramatically in a powerful and compelling way? The answer is people who are qualified to do that are the artists who aren't necessarily software geeks, aren't necessarily um, hardcore users, aren't necessarily... Uh, are, are potentially uh, a bit daunted by layers and layers of, of menus and pop-up windows and, and lists and things that you have to edit and little bits of code. So where for me the holy grail lies is ease of use and, and presenting to an artist whose main strength is music or main strength is sound design, main strength is imagination and creativity, the ability to sculpt the sonic experience um, in a way that that uh, doesn't doesn't they don't get impeded by the te- by overly technical concerns.
1: I would agree with that. The one thing I would do to to because uh, again, Clint's I been doing games for Sony for quite a while, big big titles. I just finished a social game, uh, 55 minutes of original score, a company you all would have heard of, and the way I delivered sound was I FTP'd wave files to a developer who at their whim, got them in usually right, not always. I'd love to know <laughs> how this, if this, you know, how uh, the, the toy thing, are working with LeapFrog, in terms of yeah. the kinds of styles and uh, levels of... Absolutely, uh, yeah,
0: Richard, we haven't heard from you yet, so let's, let's
1: hear a little yeah, bit no, from, I've been, from uh, the toys.
5: Yeah, i my time. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, we're, we're very much stuck in the past in that respect. It's uh,
1: stone Knives and Bearskins, some, uh, for a lot of the smaller games, Stone Knives and Bearskins to do stuff, so... But, Clint yeah. is aspirational but uh,
5: it's uh it, you know it's pretty much the antithesis uh of interactive audio at least at LeapFrog I think the you know the priorities are slightly different uh being a toy company you know uh, although we are moving much more towards interactive audio it's still very much in the hands of the developer and uh you know the audio designer doesn't really get to uh guide the process of you know making sure the interactive experience is exactly what they want so it's but you get um,
3: you, you get that though like there i know we've worked in, on stuff that have have totally been interactive and in a way like some of that midi stuff is actually Easier to work with and get things to respond, you know, as far as like, you know, drawing a line and having the, the pitch go then, up you know, and like then, you, then, you, like then like right. MP3s. Right. Like, yeah. I, I, I
5: think I'm, I must have actually uh, arrived at LeapFrog at, at a sort of tangential point because, uh, you know, back in the day when uh, LeapPad, the big success of LeapFrog that kind of made it stratospheric, um, was uh, LeapPad was the big thing and MIDI was extremely. Complex and you know uh, there was a lot of interactivity that was programmed on the MIDI side of things for those products. Uh, just after I arrived, the company sort of tanked for several years, and that went that all went away. <laughs> so so now the uh, the level of MIDI uh, you know uh, interactivity that we uh, involve ourselves in is much much less. Um, but we're not at the same time at a point of. Uh, ramping up the interactivity on the, you know, on the lots of you know, we're doing a lot of screen, you know, screen-based titles, a lot of you know, games, you know, full-on interactive games. But we're not there, you know, we're not using we're not using middleware, and so it's a kind of yeah. an interesting sort of transition point that I hope, you know, I'm I'm sort of banging my fists on the table every day. Trying F- to get into. Come on. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize how
1: much cool audio there is in some of these toys. Uh, a friend of mine works at yeah. Fisher Price. Sorry, big mm. <laughs> competitor, Leapfrog. And the amount of work that went into the SpongeBob game she was doing was more audio than I used to stick into a triple-A Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo okay, title. Absolutely. Back to, for you know Madden or Desert Strike or NARC or something like that. So there's lots and lots of audio being done, and the toy guys are getting a lot more creative. And-
5: yeah, I mean, one thing that's actually interesting, being, you know, being a toy company, uh, the standalone toys that we do uh, are an example, a kind of really good example of, of ingenious sort of Interactive design, uh, yeah. where you know you're working with such a tiny, tiny chipset chip that uh, the way you the way you sort of chop up the audio and you know have it interact with it, you know the various different parts is uh, takes a lot of thought and a lot of design. And we end up working um, you know with the producers and the designers on a, a much more granular level on the standalone toys than we do with yeah. say uh, a, a tag title or, a, or a, you know a screen based title. Oh in a way that you know.
0: kind of takes you back to the early days of game development when you were yep. limited by the yes. memory
5: capability of the game box yeah.
0: itself. Well, that yeah and that you're, so you're much. in it's your own kind of proprietary game box in a way yeah. having to you know crunch your sounds down and Absolutely. account for every little have yeah. every single yeah. byte yeah. of memory. Yeah. Well, Chris and uh, I uh, we were talking
2: we Yeah, we, we were talking upstairs and I was just I've been working like I just recently worked on a SpongeBob title for um, since we're mentioning Sp- Sp- Spongebob to my mind um, Spongebob Moves In which is an iPad app which is a world builder game it's got a lot of, lot of music and a lot of sound design in it um, but we were just talking about how it's like it's it's like we're talking about converg- converting sound again. So oh oh I had a you know it's too big but MP3 files are skipping. So oh we have to go to M4A and that works on Apple but it doesn't yeah it's and it's like I don't um, want to have this conversation again. This is yeah. this is not a conversation. I'm like Obama. I will not negotiate. <laughs> you know I do not want to talk about this <laughs> no. stuff anymore. Yet it's um, come back into my things. world because developers are saying well uh, all, the audio sounds great and I'm listening to it. It's all skipping. It's like, okay, uh, we need to do something about that. So and they're it's, like,
3: sometimes they don't know. Do you know they have no? They don't, is exactly. actually don't loop cleanly? So you know, they don't
2: one know. of the things, if, you're, if you haven't sort of gotten it from the panel at this point, if you're really interested in doing music and sound for games, one of the things it's really important for you to do is to sort of become a technical evangelist in some way you know learn about the systems and find out the information it's a it's opportunity for you to understand more about what's happening but but that component it's more than in film film's been around for a very long time There are very specific processes for that and it it moves much slower than games games move incredibly quickly technology comes and goes very very fast and things are always changing so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna put
0: in a shameless plug then if you are interested in learning about this stuff uh, Steve is doing a workshop this weekend. As a matter of fact, two-day game audio workshop. Yeah. Uh, you can learn all about Unity 3D yeah. and FMOD and implementation yeah. uh, into games. And you actually get to implement your own music right. and sound design into a game this weekend. If yeah. you're interested, you can find out more about that. Yeah, you could, see,
2: you could see me after the panel or whatever. But, but a lot of the things that we're talking about is directly related. I, I, you know, um, I teach over at the AAU. I also teach at Pyramide in classes. And... You know, students, people today in general, age group, doesn't matter, are very, very, very hip to what they want sound to do. We're very used to games that have a lot of adaptivity and interactivity with the sound. And, you know, I'll do something like bring Pong up on the screen. And by the time we finish talking about it, it's got adaptive soundtracks that are tied to the ball movement. And I'm like, I'm like, you guys really understand what interactive media is about. But that gap, right, between what that means, right, what th- that understanding of interactive media and how to get there is something that takes a little bit of hand-holding because, and, and that's what we do in the workshop, is really step-by-step to sort of expose the workflow mm-hmm. so that at the end of the day, you've put your stuff into Unity mm-hmm. and that's a demo of your composing and designing skills for a game director, for an audio director, versus a piece of linear media that's cut to a you know, uh, um, a movie, you know, and or cut
0: scene—the big difference there. Yeah. So, uh, Richard, I want to kind of come back to you for a moment here because um, even though you're a little in the dark ages with what you're dealing with on some of these toys, <laughs>
5: trapped in the past but looking to the future. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, you've been doing some pretty groundbreaking work um, on a whole other level with brain-computer interface technology yeah. and biofeedback in video games. Mm-hmm. So, uh, can you tell us about that? And can can games be a platform for? interpreting players' thoughts and feelings as they subjectively experience a game?
5: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, y- you know, in, in fact, I think that it's something that uh, we as, uh, as, as users, as, as game players, have been, actually been subconsciously kind of scratching around for and try, you know, wishing to happen for quite a while, for at least the, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. I would say that the sort of key term here is um, disintermediation you know, what we ultimately want is to get closer to our senses when we're, when we're playing these games. We don't want a joystick. We don't want, you know, a, a, a controller. We don't want to press the D-pad. Ultimately, what we want is to be in the game with no, no sort of veil between, you know, us and the experience. And so biofeedback is, is, is a way that we can potentially get there. Um, there are... So, like I said, lots of different ways in which we can measure measure our sort of physiological responses, and actually, you know, bring these into gameplay. Uh, you may have come across uh, uh, an experimental psychologist by the name of uh, Mike Ambinder, uh, who is at Valve, and he has been looking into. Valve have been looking into biofeedback for the last uh, six or seven years. Um, specifically, they've been looking at things like um, eye tracking, uh, what is called SCL, skin conductance level, um, also, also EEG, which is where I t- have tended to focus my energies. Uh, and basically, you know, what you're getting there is a continuous amalgam of signals that are, that are ex- sort of telling the game what the player's internal state is—you know, how they're feeling about, you know, a particular scenario, whether they're engaging the fight or flight response, you know, whether they're aroused by a particular scene, or whether they're bored—you know, you getting that all all of that information. Uh, and up until now, you know, biofeedback's been around for a long time. It's been around for pff, 60 years. I mean, actually, close to 100 years if we you know go back to the lab. But only now, in the last. 10 years has the hardware caught up with the sort of promise and we're getting to the point where uh, we can extract these signals in high resolution in real time cheaply and uh for example the the piece of hardware that i use to interface with is uh It's from a company called Emotive. You've probably come across, you may have come across them, Emotive Systems. They develop a a 16-channel EEG headset, uh, which uh, has a level of processing uh, on it that extracts certain types of signals, so emotional signals, uh, cognitive signals, which are actually uh, a a training suite for neural patterns, so specific thoughts that you can train on, re-evoke, and then... Uh, uh, control events in a in, But how, in a, in a game. how does all
0: this data then correspond to actual gameplay? How do you use that to interface uh, with the game state environment?
5: So uh, there, there are a number of ways that you can do that. So uh, I'll, I'll give an example of a company, an Austrian company that is working on a game right now. It's called Son of Noor. Uh, the company is called Still Alive Studios. And what they've done is they've taken the emotive uh, headset and they have uh, created a, a narrative where uh, the the hero, son of Noor, is uh, a terraformer and um, part of uh, they're sort of a magic terraformer. You know, they're able to cast magic, uh, you know, and, and and create worlds basically. And the uh, they've tied in the emotive cognitive suite to the telekinesis aspect uh, of the terraforming. So, you know, when it's time to uh, create a new, uh, a new landscape, uh, you'll engage your telekinetic powers. You'll have trained on this uh, at the beginning of the game, and you'll be able to, uh, the more you concentrate, the more you focus on that particular thought that you trained on, you're able to actually sort of recreate the world uh, that, you know, that according to... According to your sort of neural patterns, which so is it's, pretty it's cool, it's like
0: it's reading your mind. And it, you're, that's exactly. You're, yeah. you're visualizing yes. this world, and it's pretty reading much, your, yeah. pretty much. Uh, so, it's pretty so far out stuff, yeah, you know. and
5: so game, des- game <laughs> designers and game developers are really excited about this. But what they seem to concentrate on quite a lot is uh, the uh, the attention and focus and these these sort of neural training patterns, uh, and they've tied it very much to the visual. So they've tied it very much to a sort of point-and-shoot mechanic where, you know, you're able to kind of pick rocks up with your mind or shoot aliens throw with your trucks. mind. Throw you know. trucks. Throw trucks with your mind. There's a
2: game called Throw Trucks with Your Mind. Throw, you trucks, with your throw mind. trucks with it's your great. brain. Throw trucks with your brain. It
5: really works, you throw trucks. <laughs> um, but But, you know, for an audio, as an audio designer, what I, what I see as being really, really attractive is taking the emotional state information uh, because really, you know, when we're talking about music and sound, it's, it's our ability to, to manipulate, you know, emotions. Uh, and we're able to get lots of information about uh, how uh, excited we are, how frustrated we are, whether we're in a a calm state, and it's a no-brainer so to sp- sorry for the pun um, to, uh, to, to to tie that into an interactive uh, soundscape uh, you know an interactive score so then the brain states are actually controlling the score itself
0: and creating different levels of the adaptive score so the score is responding to the brain states as opposed to say programming and in Weiss or, or or some type of audio engine. Well, it would
5: it would go through those it would go those through those intermediaries. That would still that would still happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I've been building uh, some games using the emotive in uh, in Unity. So you know I'm able to uh, I'm able to control the sound uh, through the emotive in in a Unity environment. You know? So those
0: so. become
2: parameters.
5: Exactly. Actual, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well,
2: Richard, tell them about NeuroDisco about. Well, you'll be demoing later.
5: Right, right. <laughs> um, so, so what is NeuroDisco? NeuroDisco is a, uh, a system that I built as a prototype uh, for things to be determined in the future. Um, now, my, my, my prototyping environment is actually Max MSP. Uh, who knows what Max MSP? Okay. Okay, so it's uh, very much a, it's, a, it's an interactive... Uh, object oriented programming environment that allows you to kind of build things from the ground up, and I built an interface with the emotive uh, that um, sort of tied into a stochastic music generation system uh, that responded to your cognitive state, so you would train on certain signals, and those signals would generate a certain density of musical material uh, and at the same time, I separated out the emotional state information to um, to control a, a an underlying beat. So the beat would be selected according to the sort of first past the post winner of the emotional state that you're in. So if if meditation you know, passes the post, then, then the, the music will crossfade, the beat will crossfade into a, into, into a sort of calm, you know, environment. But over the top of that, you're able to control the generation of the musical material uh, actively using these neural-trained patterns uh, that I mentioned. So there's any number of ways that you can sort of skin a cat. The interesting thing about the emotional state information is that it's sort of a, it's, a, it's an amalgam of various different levels of... Uh, sort of emotional state. So what you could do uh, is you can actually directly orchestrate that to uh, you know say you've got five different emotional states. You've got meditation, long-term ex- excitement, short-term excitement, frustration. You can actually sort of directly tie those because it's li- it's temporal and linear. You can directly tie those to 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 orchestral elements, for example, and you know, that would be a continuous score that is constantly fluctuating and changing. Long-term excitement moves much more slowly than short-term excitement, so you have get these different contours that are happening sort of all at the same time. So yeah. there are lots of different ways that you can go with it. Fascinating. Could I, could I yeah. just,
2: just, I just oh, want to add a couple of things. One is there's, this stuff is, it sounds all science fiction-y and stuff, but it's here now. There's a NeuroGaming conference that takes place in San Francisco, started up this year, and I went to it with Richard, and awesome. Just unbelievable what these companies... I flew a helicopter with my mind and these training programs are not... We were at Pyramind doing a demo where I, you're able to move sound around in, a three, in their 3D room, in their surround sound room. It's all very direct uh, stuff that's really happening now. Um, One
5: thing I would say on, on that point, uh, we're going to see uh, this becoming much more visible in the next six months. Uh, I'm personally going to be taking delivery of four new kinds of headsets uh, by the end of the year. Now these are coming on stream between December and March. The one the one to watch is the Interaxon Muse headset, which is a six-channel dry sensor headset that's designed to be worn all day uh, in all kinds of environments. So uh, what you have here is uh, this disintermediation that we're talking about. You know, the EEG headset from a motive is this big clunky thing that looks like a, you know, kind of... Uh, football helmet or something uh very very sleek but um but the so does
0: this mean now uh, next thing you know we've we've got the connect in our bedroom now it's, yeah. w- it's watching us yeah it's well, listening no, no, no. to us are we going to actually start strapping ourselves into these things and having them read our minds well is I that th- what you're telling us
5: here? i you know i think if there are Do adaptive algorithms <laughs> if there are uh, ai algorithms i think that's cool uh-huh. i mean you know that it, it's uh in a sense, it's um, sort of much more transparent and uh, much more real.
0: It's to a real. It, it becomes. It, it kind of fulfills the promise of that true virtual world experience. Then yeah. I think so. And in terms and in of gameplay, uh-huh. you know,
5: if you're if you're into, for example, on the big epic games, I think the people who play those games have a very sort of strong view of themselves as the players, as the as the gamers, and and it's very much tied to. Who am I, you know, as the hero going through this, going through this journey? If the game can actually sort of well, pick man, up on that, that internal yeah. state and sort of respond to it, that's really compelling, I think.
0: That opens up a whole yeah. other box. Well, so uh, hold on. Yeah. We're, we're running out of time here, so I yeah, want to know if we have any questions yeah. in the room at this point because I'd love to be able to get some of your questions. Yeah, right over here. Um, I'm,
3: sure.
6: Hello. Can I tell some jokes first so I get my... Voice right not really sorry um i'm new to the era, new to the world of audio production and i'm just curious i'm uh, at my i've been studying synthesis uh, audio synthesis and i'm just curious how uh, much uh, everybody knows about synthesis here in this panel or how big of a You know, how much of an element is knowing audio synthesis, you know, different waves forms, how, you know, the ADSR works and all of this in creating, like how much uh, integrated is that in your work? You know, like knowing the whole interface of of a synthesizer and using it to create different sounds within whatever environment you're working on uh
0: who who wants to answer that one
6: Uh, i mean i'll I'll pass it off just to say that i think
2: you'll get a different answer from everyone on the panel um you know for me i use i i I, am not a synth programmer um i've written music for games for a very long time and i know about waves and sine waves and square waves and stuff like that but it pretty much stops there i don't i don't do my own synthesis let's
0: just say it's one tool set in your arsenal Okay, and it really depends on your approach and what you want to focus on. And if you want to go on to become a sound designer, I would say it's, it becomes a much more important tool in your arsenal set uh, from a sound design perspective. But it's it's one piece of the puzzle.
3: We actually built a little sequencer uh, that was part of the game engine in this game. It was a, it was a sequencer that was also a synth, and I built it in max MSP, and then... What's great about Max MSP is you can actually you can export JSON or XML. And so those XML parameters became the ADSR, you know, for this certain synth and this certain layer. And the programmer built mm-hmm. on his end, he built the actual synth that works in the game. And we actually made that happen. Like we I built a little emulator for, you know, and this is how I want it to be. And then the very same parameters that i was programming on the desktop ended up in the game yeah
1: there's a a, a similar i I was talking with a friend of mine who just took a pretty good gig at amazon sort of the head of interactive audio and he's like there's lots of people out there that can twiddle knobs and there's not a lot of people that can twiddle knobs and knows what's happening when they twiddle those knobs and the latter is the kind of person that that he prefers to uh to be able to work with this kind of thing but as Greg was saying, it's one, one tool in your arsenal. And in game audio, you've got lots of tools in your tool bag to deal with. Any other questions?
0: Yeah, right back there.
6: I've gotten a lot of demos of Headphone X technology, which is DTS's um, black box for Yeah, I wanted to talk television. about that. We didn't get to that. And I've, I've been super unimpressed with it because, to me, um, a lot of surround and the, the beauty of being in a surround environment is when you make a subtle head movement or if you're moving your head around, you actually... Um, feel that, in the, and you can't get that with DTS yet. They need to implement some sort of head-tracking function, like right. Biodynamic has has so, a head zone.
1: Excellent point. Binaural rendering, in and of itself, and I sort of learned this a little bit with Ear Monsters, gets you a certain amount of stuff, but it doesn't get you all of it. There are a couple of big pieces that are missing, um, head-tracking being one, and you add head-tracking to... He- head-tracking is the ability to sort of know where you're looking at, because it's one of the things that you do Consciously or subconsciously to help figure out where a sound is. I mean everybody's heard something. And you, what do you do? You go You turn your head and sometimes it's even minute turns of head that disambiguates a lot of where a sound appears to be coming from and so head tracking can do that pretty well Without head tracking. It's very easy to confuse front and back another problem with 3d audio in general uh, I'm not feeling ballsy enough to do this today, but try it at home with your friends is sit them down in a chair close their eyes, tell them you're going to snap your fingers, point to where they hear the sound coming from, then snap here, they'll go like this, snap here, they'll go like that. Snap here. I'm sorry, snap here. Forty percent of people will point behind them. So even in nature, in the absence of visual cues, we can't tell where a sound's coming from for a very short sound. The reason snapping is that it doesn't give you a chance to do the sort of head, ear tra- head tracking thing. So it's extremely difficult to get some types of images over headphones. And as any other game design thing, when you're putting this technology into games or something, game design is a lot of the art of knowing how you can cheat. And so ear, a lot of Ear Monster design was spent figuring out how can I cheat to make things sound cooler than I'm actually able to be able to do. Yeah. So that's this limitation with some of these technologies. Brian's, Definitely. Not, Brian's
2: not allowed to go to Vegas
6: anymore. He's actually banned.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm banned from Vegas
0: now. <laughs> uh, when you say you were disappointed, did you hear like the Man of Steel soundtrack? Or
6: Well, I tried to download the three gigabyte files for Man of Steel, and my iPod shut down in the middle of it. And also, I, I heard an 11.1 mix in the same room with the same thing mixed down professionally for Headphone X. And it's, it sounded like... Um, the setting like a stadium setting on yeah. a stereo from 15 years ago or like a, a yeah, You know Whatever my yeah. small club, you know, I right. didn't it, I could hear it the depth
0: I could, but not necessarily sonic placement that
6: you Yeah I could hear with. the processing which is not a good thing like yeah. I could hear the it's supposed to be coming from over there But I know that it's just a delay and a slight uh-huh. EQ so
0: perspective any other questions because we're about run out of time here
6: Yeah So there's been sort of an increasing role of procedural generation in different areas in game design, Uh, you know, sort of initially starting with terrain and moving into, you know, whole environments and now procedurally generated textures are getting really good. Uh, What do you see as the role of procedural generation in audio design for simple things like, you know, having footsteps that don't sound the same, you know, every single time that you take a step? Well, Well,
4: I'll just
6: briefly, I I think that
4: that is a perfect example, footsteps, other sounds, explosions, keeping things fresh, Uh, and and, and when, when it gets good enough, you know, it, it can be more like reality than than packaged stuff. I, I think it'll be a much longer time in music. I know your question didn't really focus on music, but I I, I think it'll be much longer time in music, especially if if we're talking about compositional decision making. But
1: one of the problems we have in game audio is that recorded wave files give us the equivalent of photorealistic sounds. Mm-hmm. A great gunshot is a great gunshot. And virtually no amount of physical modeling will get you that kick-ass gunshot that a good field recording will. So that's fundamentally different than in graphics where they can't have, you know, sprites. Essentially, a wave file is an audio sprite. Uh, And so the problem becomes is that the things that make cool sounds cool are the massive complexity and intricacies of the imperfections of physical, physical objects in the real world. When I hit this table, it's got these cool things that to actually model that. I, I can do, with not a whole lot of math, a basic model of a something square and I hit it. And it sounds like shit. It doesn't sound adequate for the creative needs of the game. <laughs> so it's much cheaper and faster, easier with better outcome to go record a bunch of wave files than it is to try and physically model something today. So until they start getting these these types Uh of imperfections and can model them reasonably, it's also practically very difficult, the kind of modeling you have for breaking glass or spilling water or scraping metal are completely different mathematical algorithms. So it's exceptionally difficult to get something that sounds... Yeah, it'll sound like metal hitting metal it won't be cool, kick-ass metal-hitting metal. metal, hitting metal. And
4: I'd And like to add, too, that, that it could be a component of a sound mm-hmm. that's oh, physically yeah. modeled, I, I, right? So we have part. layers. Some of them are, are, are hard wave yeah. files that are pitch-shifted in real time, randomly, to kind of give that fresh, like, footsteps. But also could be certain components that, that are in response to the environment or the situation at hand, the, the physical, yeah. physical yeah. acoustical properties. Yeah,
1: we, we do that sort of stuff in games a lot where we have sort of this hybrid physical modeling. A yeah. great example is... Yeah. When you hit an object with lots of intensity, there's lots of high-frequency energy that comes out of that. Mm. So what we do is we can start with wow, <laughs> very high-frequency impacts, and now throw it through some DSP that models the sorts of things that happen when you're having things less, that's, less that's, hard.
4: That's great to tie it into the physics engine, of course. Right. I mean, that goes without yeah. saying that they're talking to each other. And, uh, I would add in music, the analog- analogy for me is is looking towards a day. this is a bit of a loose analogy it 's not so much about physical modeling but but towards a day where MIDI and onboard samples uh, uh, in your game are resident. Because that's how we compose. We can do some pretty darn uh, good-sounding pieces with virtual orchestras and things like that. Sure, sure. And And one of the
0: pieces we didn't touch on either that I wanted to get to today was the concept of HDR audio, high dynamic range audio, that uh, companies like DICE have implemented in games like Battlefield. And why uh-huh. those games sound as amazing as they do. Uh, yeah, yeah you, we
1: didn't touch on interactive mixing, which is a whole other topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've got them. enough topics here to fill up <laughs> about three
0: hours or four or two days, as Brian does with his conference at Game SoundCon. Yeah. But unfortunately, we've, we have run out of time here oh. today. So thanks for being a great audience. We, we've enjoyed speaking with you. And thanks to all the panelists here today. You guys have been fantastic.
4: Thank you, Greg. Thank you.